Our, our enemy uh, tried to, uh, in terms of target, targeting the first thing was the gun, the machine gun. The second was the medic. And the third thing was whoever was in front of the uh, RTO. Uh, after a while, I discovered that I could t- tie down my RTO's antenna. And uh, I try to look as grubby as possible to not distinguish myself from uh, every, every other grunt. And, and it seemed to, to work uh, except uh, five months later <laughs> when uh, I was taken down by a sniper. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Welcome to another educational edition of the Stigma-Free Vet Zone from our studio overlooking the Milwaukee River in downtown West Bend. And today we are going to stay right here in the studio and welcome our guest, Alan Palahoski. And Alan was born in Milwaukee. He graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire in 1968 and was drafted into the United States Army. After completing infantry training, he attended officer's candidate school at Fort Benning, Georgia, with duty assignments at Fort Jackson as a training officer and at Fort Benning as a training in Heavy Mortar Platoon Leadership School. Upon graduation, Allen was assigned to the Republic of Vietnam, where he served as a rifle platoon leader, a commanding general's briefing officer, and an operations officer at the 65th PSYOP. Allen returned to the United States, where after serving an additional eight years in the Army, he left the Army at the rank of major. Allen is married 52 years to his college sweetheart, Linda, and together they have a beautiful daughter, Stacy, who was married to Lee, and they have two great, beautiful grandchildren, Sydney and Luke. Alan worked as an account executive before starting his own business, Diversified Services Management, which he brought to success and then sold his business off in 2011. Alan remains active in, the fa- in his family life and the veteran community, He has enjoyed serving on several board of directors with the Kettle Marine YMCA and Marine Park Technical College Foundation. There is much more to Alan's story, but we're going to start with there so we can bring Alan in and have him share a little bit more for us. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. Welcome. Pleasure being here. 
Oh, my goodness. It's our honor. And as we spoke several times before, it's an honor to finally have an officer, <laughs> former officer to talk to, to get the other side of uh, the yes, story or a different story. Paul Harvey. so take us back to uh, explain you're from the south side and you're very proud of your polish heritage uh tell us a little bit about uh, alan uh, as a boy family and uh interest and all that sort of thing yes uh thank you my grandparents we uh, my family my mother and father and i lived with my grandparents they were from poland uh, on the south side of Milwaukee on Beecher Street. Uh, interesting thing about the south side, there was a Catholic church every bo- eight blocks and a funeral parlor every 12 <laughs> and a bar on every corner. Uh, I'm a product of parochial education, having been to a grade school that was Catholic as well as an all-boy parochial school, uh, Don Bosco. Uh, I worked during the summer years when I was working uh, when I went to Eau Claire as, as a machine, machinist at Allen Bradley, second shift. And the interesting thing, when the riots occurred in 1976, they would not let us leave Allen Bradley, and we had to spend the night there until uh, the curfew was over, which is at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I graduated from Eau Claire with a degree in economics in January of 1968. The next day, I received uh, a, dra- a love letter from Uncle Sam, uh, just to go back in time, uh, there was no lottery at the time in 1968. You, you were given classifications. Uh, my classification it was as a 2S, which meant I was a student. So they would not draft me until I, the 2S classification was eliminated. And that, that occurred in January of 68. Fortunately, I was under the assumption that my 2S would continue, and I had rolled in and graduate school at UWM in, in economics. Uh, but the draft board said, I'm sorry, but uh, your 2S is over. You got your uh, bachelor's degree. It's time to move on. So I struck a deal with the draft board. They let me finish the semester with at UWM, but I had to uh, enroll in what they call the college op program. The college op program meant that uh, Uncle Sam would guarantee you the OCS of choice after basic training at EIT. And uh, a, a good fraternity brother of mine had been drafted a year before my me and was also uh, involved in this college op program and signed up for armor. Well, I decided that that would be the ideal thing to do in as much as there was not much armor in Vietnam, but rather in Germany and Korea. Well, uh, after basic training in AIT, uh, they told me that the armor school had been closed. So I had an option. It was either infantry, infantry, or infantry. So I chose infantry. <laughs> let, me, let me interrupt for just a second. Uh, Alan, the, uh, OCS, when, they, when you say OCS, Officer Candidate School is what you were referring to. Yes. But let, let's stay with your family a little bit because we want to know what your mom's thinking about this, your dad's thinking about this, brothers and sisters, and how the family uh, was part of your entrance into the military and uh, what influence they might have been. Do you have a military background in your family? Uh, my father was in World War II, and when I dropped my draft notice, I had a, I sat down with him and we discussed the options. And the options were, of course, at the time, uh, go to Canada. But uh, he and I decided that was not a good option, and uh, so uh, I I decided to to go ahead with the draft and not go to Canada. My mother is a very religious, was a real religious person, as was my father. One of the things she gave me was a scapula. 
scapula. Uh, scapula is a like a something that will hang around your neck, and, and it uh, is portraits of, of different saints. Well, interestingly enough, uh, as a, an aside, uh, my RTO, radio telephone operator in Vietnam, uh, after I got hit, he wanted my scapula. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad time to pick that as a... <laughs> well, I said, you lasted this long, why as well give it to me? <laughs> well, well, back to... Uh, so, having had that background with my father and, and mother, there was no other option but, of course, to honor the name of Paula Husky and go on to uh, the, the Army. Uh, my wife and I had not been married at the time. We, we were married between uh, AIT, which is Advanced Individual Training. By the way, I, I did basic training in AIT at Fort Dix in New Jersey. Uh, so the options, uh, we got married at, at, uh, between those two dates in October. And uh, I was fitted for a tuxedo uh, in April before I, uh, or I should say uh, in March before I went into the Army. And uh, in October, I'd lost so much weight. I, was, I went from 185 pounds to 135 pounds. My, mux, my tuxedo hung on me like... <laughs> and that was a result of, of your, course, yeah. well, you know, your you know, training. Like, uh, interesting story in EIT. Our mess sergeant would steal all the steaks. And he knew that we would not report him because uh, if we did, our next... Adventure would be the dog school. <laughs> yeah. and, and very poor. Dog school was not a, a very good place to be. But, but I just want to mention, because I think it's very honorable, both of your parents came here to the United States from oh, no, Poland. my grandparents. Oh, your grandparents yes, came. Yes. So you're second generation uh, of Polish heritage, mm-hmm. which you're very proud of. Yes. But now, you're, wh- what is your mom thinking about you entering the military? I mean, mothers have a different opinion, typically, course, than fathers. Of course. Was, was she concerned? Uh, uh, absolutely. You know, as would all mothers be that uh, you're going in harm's way. And uh, interestingly, my, my father served during World War II in California. He was on an anti-aircraft gun during the duration of the war and never really went overseas. So uh, me being the lucky one, being in infantry, the fear was, uh, you know, infantrymen are uh, definitely uh, going to be in harm's way. So uh, there was also that concern. Yeah, there was again, because he, I got the scapula, I knew she was praying for me every day. Yeah. I remember the scapula. I was raised Catholic, too. It was re- really more of a medallion. It actually had a medallion more in cloth that hung on the front and the back of you. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, not, not just on the, not a religious no, medallion just on the front of you. It was on the was front and the back. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. I remember those very well. I, I didn't have one to take to, to Vietnam, yes. but I, I, we had the other ones. It was just a regular medal, right. the crucifix and that sort of thing. So b- brothers and sisters? None. None. I'm, I'm an only child. This is my, my daughter. By the way, my daughter was born when I was in Vietnam. Yeah. Well, let's get back up to that. So we know a little bit about your family background. Now you've gone to OCS school. Yes. And take us from there because it, 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 there's in there some, well, something happens with uh, this childhood sweetheart of yours. Well, uh, interestingly enough, when... Uh, uh, be, after we got married, my wife is, was a speech pathologist, and she taught at Winona State College, or that's where she would service the people with speech problems. So we uh, realized that that separation wasn't good for either of us, so uh, she decided to get a job in uh, Columbus, Georgia. So she became a speech pathologist when I was in OCS, and the interesting thing about OCS was a 24-week period. Uh, and, and it had different stages. The basic stage was the first eight weeks. The second eight weeks, you were a black candidate. In other words, 
you had a uh, black background on the, on under your OCS tabs, and uh, your last eight weeks you were considered blue, a blue candidate. During that entire time, we were never allowed to leave post. The only time we could see our wives was uh, going to church or temple or whatever. We couldn't hold hands because that was considered a public display of affection. The only other time we could see each other was uh, they would allow us laugh-in privileges. At the time, laugh-in was a, uh, a series. It was a comical series. On TV. Yes, on television. on television that uh, viewed from 7 to 8. So we could meet our wives in the day room. And we could we could give them our laundry, and uh, they would then have it have it laundered and bring it back to us because we couldn't go to the laundromat or wherever. Uh, interestingly enough, our company our company commander at the time, Captain Jacobson, was his name, uh, a small fellow uh, who was who had received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, very interesting man. Uh, the wives during our OCS period kind of revolted against him, and he got real angry with us and <laughs> provided some severe punishments for everybody. <laughs> the Army then was a heck dot different than it is today. Yeah, I would there think was so. no coddling. There was uh, reparations for things that they discovered or thought were, were contrary to military discipline and or the, uh, the dictates of the commanding, of our company commander. So uh, that that was uh, OCS, and and of course your graduation from OCS was a big deal. You were commissioned a second lieutenant at the day of graduation. Uh, the other one of the other requ- interesting requirements, uh, everyone was issued boots, co- combat or regular boots when they got into the military. When you got an OCS, you you had to discard those boots and get Cochrane's. The Cochrane boot was one worn by airborne. So uh, that would distinguish us when we were in the uh, school, the infantry school. We had Cochrans that were highly polished, and the ROTC officers who were also there had what we called goody boots. Those are the boots that were provided when you first got into the military. Uh, so that was the distinguishing feature when walking through the infantry school. Wow. <laughs> now, I, I, I would like to stop and just ask you a couple of questions about this uh, graduation from OCS. Now you're married. Uh, I, I suppose the first question, like, if it was so miserable there, you couldn't see your wife, you couldn't get off base, you couldn't go anywhere. Did, did you did you rethink about going to Canada? <laughs> <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Too late. Yeah. But but seriously, at what point? Now you become an officer. Now you're a leader of men. Is there it, at what point there must be a change from, for example, when I was drafted and went in, it was about me. Now you're going in and you're giving another responsibility. When does that come into play? Uh, from the first day of, of uh, OCS, okay. the concept was, and still is, I hope, mission and men. That was always drummed into us. So your intent was always to consider the mission, but then also consider your men. Uh, well, now, of course, would be women. So uh, those are the two the precepts of, of being, a, being an officer in terms of the, the concepts that were drummed into you. So... Uh, you so always could so could we extrapolate out and say that they, it, it was also about mission? It was always about mission. Mission, and then the men second. I, yes. I think that's an important thing to remember yes. because you're going to have to make, or officers are going to have to make some pretty really strong yes. decisions along the so way to stay with that simple thing. The thinking. question became: At what point 
does one oversee the other, over, overtake the other? Or, or can there be a blending? Can you accomplish the mission and yet make provisions for the safety of your, of your pillow, people? Well, in, in a firefight, oftentimes it's difficult to say, uh, <laughs> I'm going to take care of you because everyone's shooting for their lives or trying to protect themselves. Uh, self-preservation is a very strong, strong uh, motivation. So, uh, of course, you try to do it, try to accomplish the mission, but uh, oftentimes the men were lost, not necessarily because of the total accomplishment, but as a result of doing both. And and the men understood that. You know, they all knew that we had a job to do and we, we all did it. The one other consideration that everyone had was protecting everyone else. Your buddy was your buddy and you took care of him and he took care of you. Even as an officer, you know, uh, my RTO slept with me. It's not figurative. <laughs> you want to clear that up a little bit? Yeah, we uh, we dug the, the hole and we're in the same hole together. Yeah. Well, but it makes sense. And I, th- I think that's a worthy point to, to explain a little bit. But RTO is a radio transmitting officer. You're the person who's in charge of making decisions yeah. and staying in communication. So right. you need, it's like having that telephone right next to you. Right. So when you say you're, and I remember this very clearly from Vietnam, the RTO is right there. And that was actually a danger point, too, because uh, the opposing... Yeah, and it would stick up, and they knew where the heck you were. Well, and the, and the, and the opposing force would know. Well, if the radio's there, then guess what? There's probably an officer yeah, right the next to that. In front of it was a person of leadership, yeah, yes. or behind. So, but l- let me just go back. So now you're leaving officer candidate school, and you've had this insight into what your responsibilities are going to be on the battlefield as, as an officer, and now you're assigned to go where? And and of course, well, we're, we're right, going right after just getting back to getting graduated from OCS, the next uh, my next duty assignment was as a training officer. The bad thing, my wife's contract as a speech pathologist didn't end till the end of June. Well, I graduated in April 28th, so we had another two months of separation. I had to be at Fort Jackson, and she had to be in Columbus, Georgia. So we eventually got together, and uh, we lived off post because there were no. Uh, housing for officers that were available. Interestingly enough, uh, we lived in this really nice motel right out the front gate of uh, Fort Jackson. The, uh, the the person living next to us was the chaplain, a Catholic chaplain. And uh, his bedroom and our bedroom <laughs> were right behind each other. So oftentimes he, I'm sure, could hear what was going on. We, it was all prey, of course. Yeah, or listening to laughing on the TV. <laughs> he was a great guy. He brought, he brought back a lot of steaks for us, though. He enjoyed his companionship. You're, you're he drank our g- booze, though. <laughs> he drank your booze, yeah. So th- this is uh, your entry into the military. Is it not all high points along no. the way to get there? So uh, afterwards, I knew that uh, the writing was up, that the, off- the orders for Vietnam were, were imminent, so... Uh, the options were jungle school and or heavy mortar platoon leader school. And the reason I chose heavy mortar platoon leader school is uh, uh, the ability to provide for indirect fire. One of the, uh, there were three stages of uh, heavy mortar platoon leader school. There was a person loading. Then there was what they called a fire direction center. And that was the, uh, they would tell the people loading the uh, shell how, how much explosive to put on the back end of it. And the final area of the heavy motor platoon leader school was as an FO. That's a forward observer. So the advantage that I had 
having been there, is that I knew how to call indirect fire, which became a real big asset as far as I was concerned. Absolutely a big, and not only a big one, but there were people lost because people in the uh, the mortar pits uh, didn't have that background as, as much, and so friendly fire was not uh, not necessarily friendly. Yeah, not necessarily friendly. That's a good way to put it. So yes. any, yeah, go on, continue then. So uh, just uh, so th- after heavy motor platoon leader school on December twenty fourth, nineteen sixty nine, I got on an airplane at General Mitchell Field. And uh, ended up at Travis Air Force Base where I proceeded to get drunk and almost missed my flight to In Hawaii. Oakland, yeah. uh, the flight was from to Hawaii and from Hawaii. It was then to Clark Air Force Base and then landed at Tonsonut Air Force Base that was in the Republic of Vietnam. In the capital city? Yes, yes. Uh, I was then shipped to Benoit where they, it was kind of a reception station where they provided you with uniforms and a, got you got an assignment. And my assignment there was to go with the American Division, which is, if you notice, the map of Vietnam is in the upper north part of Vietnam, which is called I-Corps. Uh, as it stands, uh, the, the American Division was only activated in two different situations, once in, in World War II, and they fought, fought at Gulenberg, uh, Guadalcanal, and several other places. And the only other time the American was active was during um, uh, Vietnam. The Bearcal Division consisted of three di- three three divisions: the 11th, 198th, and 196th. 11th Division is the, n- notorious for having Lieutenant Kelly, who in 1968 was responsible for the My Lai massacre. Uh, my my division, 198th, was in the center part of the RAO or area of operation. Uh, while there, I was responsible for a platoon. Within a company, an infantry company, which typically had at the time a man strength of 156 men, uh, it also had three rifle platoons consisting of 36 men and, and an 81 millimeter uh, mortar platoon. There were three or three uh, tubes within that uh, platoon. Three tubes. Three tubes being three mortar tubes. Three mortar. Yes, three three mortar uh, uh, mortars, 81 millimeter mortars. Uh, a rifle platoon consisted of 36 men. Uh, there was a command section which consisted of the uh, platoon leader, the RTO, the medic, the platoon sergeant, and his RTO. So we had two radios for a 36-minute operation. There were three rifle squads and one, one heavy weapons squad. The, uh, the rifle squads consisted of approximately eight men, uh, one grenadier, which was an M79 grenade launcher, and the rest were riflemen. The uh, weapons platoon consisted of two M60 machine guns. Everybody in the platoon, to include the platoon leader, carried the uh, 50 rounds, extra 50 rounds of ammunition for the gunners. Uh, the gunners had uh, about 100 rounds that they carried and also an ammo box of, of ammunition. The guns were very important. They were always able to put down a, a, what they call suppressive fire. So uh, we try to uh, provide as much ammunition as possible because the guns were very important to us. Uh, our, in 1970, uh, the war was starting to uh, wind down, so replacements were becoming lesser and lesser. Uh, replacements of men. Like replacements of men. So my, my platoon and our company went from 156 men to 60, 60 people, and my platoon consisted of 15 men. 
we were down to one gun. So, uh, and they were not replenishing our people. <laughs> so, um, it was interesting times. By the way, uh, our, our company, Charlie Company, first of the 52nd, 198th Infantry Brigade, ent- entered country in 1966, and it was they stood down uh, in, in 1971. During that, that time frame, there were 97 men lost in Charlie Company. Not, not uh, to count the wounded, of course. What? Not to count the wounded. No, no, these no. were KIAs. KIAs. Yes, killed in action. So uh, let me just ask you a question here. Okay. So the question, Alan, would be, now you're, you're in Vietnam. When did you actually realize, uh, you know, training's over. Uh, this is now the real McCoy. This, yes. This is life. Do you remember that moment? Yes, I do. Um, leaving the United States, going to Hawaii, then continuing on to the arrival in Vietnam, everything was kind of a blur until they told me I'm going to the Miracle Division. Uh, I got on a plane and went I headed north, or whatever, it was a chopper, I don't remember. But reality really struck when the I ended it in Chulai, which is the uh, fire support base for the Miracle Division. They also have a reception station, and there they uh, give you your weapon, and you, they, you zero your weapon and give you your, your, your military uh, or your... Uh, your jungle fatigues, your jungle boots, etc. At that point, it, it's it's and, and they tell you about booby traps. They tell you about all kinds of stuff to be aware of. Uh, that's when reality really, really struck me. And then, of course, the next reality was taking the chopper out to the, the my company, the new company that I had, and they, as a, a brand new lieutenant in the bush. They kind of treat you like a like they would anybody else that's brand new to the the uh, environment. Uh, I was kind of the shadow to the platoon leader that I was replacing, who eventually, by the way, became a general. <laughs> wow! So now, when you just to clarify for the audience, when you say you get on a chopper, you're getting on a helicopter. Yes, 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 yes. So the yeah. the, the primary the primary mode of travel travel in in Vietnam was a helicopter. For, for a variety of different reasons, yes. Uh, resupply, uh, wherever you were, inaccessibility of m- motor vehicles to get into an area. So it had to be via chopper, and, and there were a variety of different choppers that dictated whatever the mission was that that chopper had. Well, at that point in time, uh, my platoon, or the guy that I replaced, uh, gave me all of the details that he he would primarily evolve himself with in terms of things to watch out for. And one of the big things that was stressed is keep the gun from firing inadvertently if just someone takes if you're taking a couple rounds in. And and the reason why you didn't want to expose the gun. Uh by its muzzle flash. The machine gun. You know, oh, our enemy <laughs> our our enemy uh tried to uh in terms of target, targeting the first thing was the gun the machine gun. The second was the medic, and the third thing was whoever was in front of the uh, RTO. Uh, after a while, I discovered that I could t- tie down my RTO's antenna, and uh, I try to look as grubby as possible to not distinguish myself from uh, every every other grunt, and and it seemed to to work, uh, except uh, five months later. <laughs> When uh, I was taken down by a sniper. Oh, I didn't know that's how you got your... You you did. You were awarded the Purple Heart. Yes. Uh, stay there. We're going to come right back to that. We're, I think that's an important uh, 
remark that you make because I remember that very clearly. Did you wear lieutenant's badges, uh, insignias on uh, your shirts? We didn't wear shirts. It was just primarily T-shirts, you know. Oh. And the only time that we wore uh, shirts was at night okay. when it got really, really hot. So you were camouflaging to fit in with the other. Of course, yeah. we all, we all try to look look alike. Exactly the same. Um, so now get back to you're you're out there and you've got your RTO, but are you under the command of a captain, company commander? Yes, yeah. yes, and, and he was uh, a crazy guy. Uh, in fact, we still are in communication. Uh, he was awarded the Silver Star. He should have been awarded a crazy and badge, too. <laughs> uh, by the way, uh, our company, the Charlie Company, meets once a year. And uh, I talked to several guys that were in my platoon. And uh, it's it, it just interesting to re, re, go back in time and hear what they have to say about what we did and didn't do. Uh, so... Interestingly enough, the day I got shot, I was supposed to go and become the tact, uh, the uh, tactical operations officer at the TAC. The TAC was called Tactical Operations Center. Our battalion, which was at the fire support base, that's uh, where the battalion commander, generally the rank of lieutenant colonel, uh, would have a staff, S1, S2, S3, S4, and they had a briefing officer. So that day, I was supposed to fly back into the fire support base and become the operations officer. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, <laughs> I, I took a bullet, so uh, I rec reco recovered in the rear. One of the interesting things about uh, our, I, our I think battalion... I think we may want to straighten out that sentence. You recovered in the rear, but you weren't shot in the <laughs> rear. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, the upper right, upper part of the uh, left leg, yes. right leg. <laughs> The promise that was made to us was that if the chopper could get to you, you'd be on a table in 15 minutes. And, and by table, I mean operating table. And for the most part, uh, it, that was a, a real booster for morale. <laughs> you know, you'd uh, at least be in, out of harm's way, and, and, and someone would be taking care of you if, 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 if because of the wound or whatever. Which really, for for a lot of us, goes back to our heroes, the helicopter pilots, and oh, God, yes. and, and the medevacs, uh, yeah, uh, and, and of course the medics themselves on the ground. Yes. Uh, oh, that's an interesting story. I had three medics, uh, and they were all COs or conscientious objectors for the most part. Uh, two of my medics refused to carry a weapon. And the, the third, after one week, asked for an M16. <laughs> Changed his mind. <laughs> yeah, they, they survival uh, will do that to you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Although they were they were very courageous uh, during the firefight. Speaking of the chopper pilots, they they usually brought you in, or they were called in for ammunition resupply, or or typical supplies. When it, when you needed ammunition, it was typically in a firefight. Uh, Medivacs was a, was in the course of the other time, and it, that was t also a very hot LZ landing zone. That's what LZ stands for. And when and we would say that the LZ is hot, you mean that there's it, under fire? Yeah, there, there's a firefight yeah. in, in an active situation at that point in time. So the, the chopper pilot was had to have big gonads to do those kinds of things. I'm not going to ask you to identify gonads, but we'll just go <laughs> on with that. But, but so, so you've got this going on. But one of the things I want to ask you, because this was different to us as just the, the regular grunts, grunts on the ground, you're going to sleep every night with the responsibility of these men. You have to think about tactics. You have to think about the information you're getting uh, from, from headquarters at night. On, on and their well-being. And their well-being. 
uh, is does that become a burden, or how do you how are you dealing with that, or how are now you're you going just back? Live it. You, you, you know your responsibility, and so you, you, it becomes an automatic thing. It does. So, so you're, you're going back to that introduction to OCS school, Officer Candidate School, when they're telling you two things: mission and men. Yes. So now, how what is is that playing out for you? Well, the mission, of course, in 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 that particular situation, like for example, at night, making sure everyone's dug in. Uh, that's part of the mission. You, you, you're, you're trying to provide security for the for whatever it is that you're you're, you're at, like a night logger, uh, the, the security of the company and the platoon. So you got to make sure everyone's dug in, and and that the fields of fire are set up properly. And by fields of fire, uh, which means that the uh, person engaging the enemy has a clear line of sight, and and that there's interlocking fire. Interlocking fire means that. Each weapon supports the other weapon. Overlapping fire. Yes, yeah. overlapping. Yes. Right. Right. So, you know, those are all parts of the responsibility. Nobody else did that. You know, the officer had to do it, or the platoon leader. Uh, that become a very, very important thing. Uh, I had an arrangement with my MD, M79 grenade launcher. When he was down to only one round left, I would give him my M16, and he would give me the M79, and and he always had a flechette round in it for me. <laughs> a flechette around being a small arrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that would that would shoot out like a, a what is it about maybe two and a half inches in diameter, and it would fire out a, a burst of what would really look instead of instead of BBs, they would be small arrows. Yes, yes. Uh, which yeah, it was a one 40, of the most uh, frightening, mil- frightening weapons yeah, you've ever seen. Forty millimeter uh, round that right. it fired. Yes. Right. So so now you've got that responsibility, the man overlooking them all the time. Is there such a thing as a responsibility to your men over yourself? That compromise of... Or do, or if you're considering your men, you, you oftentimes don't think about yourself. You, you know, they, they, if they're secure, then you're secure. So, so you're doing your job. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I've always thought about that difference. And of course, they're, and I don't want to belabor this whole topic... But then about becoming friends with your soldiers. Like I was buddies with, you know, Tom, this Tom and that Tom, and we could talk about how scared we were. We could talk about where we didn't want to be shot and all that sort of thing. You can have the relationship as friends to a certain point, but now you're still in command. You've yes. got to give these orders. Right. Are, are you aware of that distinction? It, it wasn't buddy-buddy. Yeah. You, know, you, you knew people by their names and what they could do and what they couldn't do. Um, so that, that was important. The other thing that... When, when we would go out on patrol, which is almost a daily thing, I would set what they call pre-planned fire, which meant I would meet with the platoon leader from the mortar platoon, and, and we would establish pre-planned figure, fire areas. So when you called in a fire mission, he had an idea exactly where, where that area was, and you'd simply give him the direction to that particular point. So they could bring in fire, indirect fire to you. Uh, one of the other considerations in Vietnam, our command prohibited us from using indirect fire on vills. They defined a vill as one one hooch, one house, one hut. So, so you could engage it with direct fire, but you could not engage it with indirect fire. So, are, are these Geneva Convention rules, or are these? I, Specific to they they were American rules. Specific to that. they were Washington D.C. rules. Right, right. But you also did have the Geneva Convention that you had to follow. Sure. Were you aware of that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. They, that was part of the indoctrination. You know, if you were captured, what are you? Are? 
you know, what can you say and what can't you see and stuff like that. If your enemy left, let you let, let you live, you know, of course. Right. Let's shift off to another what I always thought was very important part of uh, of our job there, and that was something called mail call. Oh, how important was mail call to you? Get uh, you've got this beautiful wife at home, and she's worried about you, and you're worried about her. Do you think about her a lot, or do you put it out of your mind? And and I don't want to degrade that, but almost for survival, you have to stay focused. I I didn't get my first letter until two months in country. And it was probably my wife's second or third letter because she was talking about pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> and you're hoping to see. <laughs> and, and I had no idea what the heck she's talking about. And then I got her first letter. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, out of sequence. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that would certainly be yeah, a Yeah, it was uh, interesting times. Uh, but, but mail call was a spirit lifter, a morale booster. Oh, of course, booster. absolutely. I, mean, it, and, I can't and, imagine mail call at the time. And this is hard letters. These are real yes. envelopes with stamps on. Uh, how, how that would boost your, your and, and the other thing, we, we would get parcels from home. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Sure, with hot sauce or something. Yeah, the and the, yeah, yeah, 57. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And my mother would always send dates oh. and also figs. <laughs> What, how about letters from your, your mom? Oh, your, yeah. Your I got, you know, letters from them Concerned as well. Concerned letters? Yes, and, yes. Yeah. Were you good at responding? Pardon? Were yes. Were you good at responding yes, to letters? Yes, yes. Uh, not, not all of us In At our daily activity, we got sea rations, of course, and the sea rations had two cigarettes and, and toilet paper and a, and a regular meal and coffee, uh, uh, instant coffee and instant cream. And, and every two or three weeks, we get what they call a platoon pack, a platoon pack consisted of, and also clothes. Oh yes, <laughs> every two weeks we get clothes uh, because our clothes had were shredding off our backs, uh, and, and a little bit dirty. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, yes, and, and socks. Once socks. in a while you had socks. Foot powder. Yeah. Um, so uh, the platoon pack consisted of writing materials, um, more candy. And, and I can always remember, I, I love Tootsie Rolls. <laughs> and Tootsie Rolls are part of the platoon pack. And, and then, of course, cartons of cigarettes. And uh, I, I smoked at the time either Camels, or Luckies, or Pell Bells. Or whatever you could get your hands on. <laughs> and uh, uh, the uh, black troopers loved the uh, mint-type cigarettes, Salem's and Newport's. So I, I never was in contesting with them for that, those particular cigarettes. But we also got cigarettes. And at the time, the military was very fond of uh, smoking. They could, you could smoke if you wanted. Another interesting thing, every, every time we would have to defend a ville, we would get condoms. <laughs> they would ship out condoms. <laughs> Why? I, I, don't, I don't know. For the, in, in case uh, the Vietnamese Pimps would come around and, oh, and offer and offer prostitutes. Uh, going back to to the mail call, um, you would get your letters periodically. Did you ever have a situation? And I've always thought this should be illegal. Of any of your soldiers getting a dear John letter? And what, oh yes, and, and how one devast- of my RTOs did. And how devastating that is on their morale. I, I, I still think that it, is just uh, that's it, interesting. The average age of a GI in Vietnam was eighteen years old. Isn't that something? And oftentimes, they would get married before coming overseas. Well, they and their spouses knew each other for maybe a month. So that uh, 
hard relationship, if you want to call it that, was for the most part non-existent. So yes, we the Dear John was a oftentimes uh, one of the casualties, yeah. if I could call it that. Yeah, you can. From what I, I remember. Yeah. And uh, my RTO was shipped back home and came back two weeks later, not to no avail. So it, it was that devastating that they sent him home. Well, he was yeah, he was messed up. Oh yeah. wow. So yeah, the dear John. Even though World War One, World War Two had their share, so did we in Vietnam yeah. and Korea. I'm sure. Yeah, and you went and, and mentioned African Americans smoking a typical, uh, a certain type of cigarettes. But w- did you have racial issues out in the field? Not in the bush, in Not the back. Bush. Isn't that something? The, the rear was a cesspool of uh, racism and drugs and, and drugs. Yeah. Yeah. One one of my uh, guys went AWOL, if you can believe it, in Nam. He was uh, living on, there was, our Chulai overlooked, I had a beautiful beach overlooking the South China Sea. And of course there were bunkers, and, and in this case the guy was uh, living in the bunkers with uh, other, other guys. So he was eventually found and they shipped him out, and uh, the chopper he was coming out to the field in took a bullet and hit him in the leg. And he, <laughs> yeah, he went back. Right. Yes. So, there, so there was no racism in our in the bush. There, there as far as we were, as soon as my company in, in my platoon was concerned, and, and that's always really been an important issue to me because if it's possible in the bush, it's got to be possible everywhere. So you know that whole race of, racism thing is uh, an issue that I still don't understand clearly because it, it didn't happen in the bush. Some of our best closest friends were. Yes. I didn't see black and you know right. didn't see uh, oriental. We didn't see. Um, Native American. You just saw your buddies, you know, people that you were close to. My first company commander was a black officer. Yeah. Wow. Highly respected, did a hell of a job. Um, nobody said, hey, he's black, yeah. he's brown. I know. <laughs> you know, they all bleed the same. Yeah, really. And, and, they, and they got letters, and they got Dear John. They got they everything. Got you love know, letters, you know, they got everything. They were GIs. Yeah, we were soldiers. Yes. Uh, but on that same note, when you were the officer, there comes a time when you're getting ready to go home, and you've got to turn over command. You've got to turn this over to someone else. Yes. Uh, how are you feeling about that? How, do you, how does that go? What's your expectation? Well, of going I didn't have home? to worry about turning it over. I got, they, I got shipped back to the hospital, <laughs> so I didn't worry about. It. I, I, I was not reassigned to that company until I recuperated. It took me a month for recuperation. And then you were sent on to a different. Yeah. Different so uh, while in the rear, that's where I was recuperating. So uh, you've recuperated from your wounds. You've been uh, given your Purple Heart. You're getting ready to go home. What are you expecting when you go home? Um, In your head. Just going home. (laughs) The reason I ask that, Alan, is that I remember the day before I was going home, and I thought I was going home to the same activities, the same friends. I was going to play softball on Friday night, go to the bars, drink beer, you know, Packers, Brews, all that sort of thing. And none of that was true when I got home. When I entered the military. I was l- living for the most part by myself going to graduate school. As you recall, my wife was was teaching in Winona, and I was living in Milwaukee. So uh, my activities, as you, you just described it, were minimal. You know, I was always a student. So I was a student one day and a soldier the next. There was no in-between, which also lended itself to when I got home, just, just as a brief uh, of course, you landed at Fort, Fort Lewis, Washington, and uh, there was a reception station there open 24 hours a day, and you could have whatever you wanted to eat. So uh, I was 
assigned after I had two weeks of leave back to Fort Lewis, Washington. So I, I left Fort Lewis, Washington on the uh, red eye. So there weren't the typical spitters surrounding me as I was entering the plane because it was like 11 o'clock at night. I landed in Milwaukee at about 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, there's, there's none of the agitators that's still awake at that point in time. So my concern was I was going to be a dad. I didn't go through any of the uh, things that normal people go through knowing that they're going to have a baby. As a matter of fact, my wife and I met in May at, in Hawaii for R&R. And when I got off the bus at, at the reception station at uh, Fort DeRussi, uh my wife didn't recognize me, and I didn't recognize her. She was six months pregnant. <laughs> so, uh, and, and she we, didn't recognize you because <laughs> no, you had I, lost I had a lot of weight. I had a mustache, I was oh, skinny, okay, I was oh, brown. With the hush puppies, the typical hush yeah. puppies you get at the PX. <laughs> Did she approve? <laughs> oh, you're still married. So. so so at the time when you say you're coming home to, to what, I, I don't know what I'm going home to. I, I went home to a, a wife, and I knew I had a new baby. Uh, we, we never met until I, you know, I never saw her until we met that time in December 24, 1970. So being an instantaneous father walking off, walking into the house, and uh, it's December, you know, you, you leave from uh, was 80, 85 degrees, and now you're walking into a place that's 20, 25, you know, above or whatever. So it was a, a different shock system-wise as well as uh, psyche-wise. But happy to be home. Happy to, oh, of course. Happy Wasn't to, everybody? Yeah, it happy, was the world, man. The, yeah, it was the world. Yeah, happy to see this wife. Yeah, I mean, it had to be fascinating. Exactly. It almost sounds like something that would, would have been beneficial to come home to something that was so important, like this new child. This yes. is my daughter. Uh, that probably would, would would exceed or supersede yes. uh, any, any other kind of emotions at the time because it was so important. I, I, I'm guessing that. Yes. So after leave, uh, my assignment was supposed to be Fort Lewis, Washington. Well, because I landed at Fort Lewis and I was going back to Fort Lewis, there was no travel allowances. As an officer, you're given travel allowances, TDY, going from one destination to another duty assignment. So I started a congressional. And Clem Zablocki, who was my congressman at the time, interceded for me, and we were able to change my duty assignment to, to uh, uh, Ford Benjamin Harrison in Indianapolis, Indiana. So at least we got some travel pay to go from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to, to Fort Benjamin Harrison. By the way, Fort Benjamin Harrison was a finance center, <laughs> and I was an infantry officer. <laughs> that was like putting a, a square peg in a round hole. Yeah, oh, I would think so, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, so it was a, a very, very unusual situation, at which point we were only there for, for two months, and then ETS from, from Fort Lewis. And, and, an interesting thing occurred. Uh, having been in the Army for three and a half, four years, you're used to the things that the Army's provided, you know, food, shelter, uh, medical care, all this stuff. And suddenly we are told we're no longer in the Army. So you go through a shock factor. What do we do now? <laughs> uh, what do I do? I, I've, I've been in the military all this length, and, and so what comes next? Who's going to pay me? Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to give me shelter? So uh, they, I got finally got uh, paid to go from as my last duty assignment from my last duty assignment to my home destination. 
So we decided to come to West Bend, Wisconsin, so we were paid. So how did you answer that question? What's next? Where am I getting paid? Who's going to... Well, 19, this is 1971. And, and if you look back in time, the economy sucked. So jobs were a premium. Uh, I got... Uh, I met a placement service. They, they wanted to place officers after coming back from overseas. And I, as through, through them, I was able to get two job offers, one of which uh, was with Standard Oil, and I have to move to New Jersey. And our family was in Wisconsin. We decided not to do that, so I worked for a company called Jewel T for, for a year and discovered that that was, that was not my bailiwick. Uh, one of the things that I was affected by, if that's a question you'll be asking, how did you feel when you got back psychologically? Remembering that I went from a student to uh, into the military, I looked at my contemporaries. They all had jobs. They had either been teaching for three years or were working as a, whatever job it might have been. So I, I felt denied. I felt I had missed something and someone was responsible for it and wasn't me. So I, I had this kind of contemptuous feeling about things. So besides trying to recover and being being another civilian, that that thing always bothered me. You know, why me? <laughs> why do they get me? <laughs> why did they draft me? Yeah. yeah. What about the other guys? How about them? Why, why didn't they go? A lot, a lot of my fraternity brothers were in the military. Um, some of my closest friends were either Navy pilots. Another guy was a Marine pilot. Uh, none of them were grunts. <laughs> but, but let me ask you this, Alan. And we are speaking with Alan Palahoski, who is a former major in the United States Army and was an infantry officer, platoon leader in Vietnam, um, was, received the, the Purple Heart. And so now you've come home and you've seen this. Uh, looking back, what does the mission look like? Was it still something you did? You believe in the mission when you got home? What we did was had value because if it had value, then would you be asking this question of you? Why me? Why did I have to go and do this? I, I thought it was senseless. Yeah. You know, we lost a lot of people. Uh, no one really, con you know, no one ever thought anything that was good about it. We got home and we were spit upon. We were looked down upon. The only ones that, you know, your, your mutual support were those that were with you or came home as a result of it. Or understood. Yes, or understood, yes. So it, it was it was the trying times coming home, as, as most veterans agree. Let me ask you this, and if it's a little bit too personal, just uh, we'll shade over it. You're coming home to a wife you had just recently married before you went into the military. She is pregnant. While I was in the military. While you were in the military. Yes. So you haven't had any civilian life with your wife, right. and now you're a new father. Did you have the same, I want to be careful with this, same emotional intimacy with the, with the wife? I mean, were you able to relate to her and be oh, close sure. to her? Oh, sure, of course. You know, she, no she was in the military, too. Yeah. She was a veteran just as much as I was. Right. She was there with the baby, and I was in Nam. Um, it was very tough on her. Yeah. Oh, uh, wow. yes. The only time we spoke is when I was in the hospital. They had this, uh, uh, remember the phone system? Uh, it was called MARS. Oh, I vaguely I don't so know you, that you, ever used You got on the phone, and, and, it, and you called someplace in, in Hong Kong, and the guy relayed your message via short wave to another guy in San Francisco who then had a phone, and he, he would you'd connect via that type of transmission. And every time you were done with a sentence, you'd say, over, <laughs> so that the uh, radio operators would know to, trans, to cut off the, 
your speak, go to the listen mode. So that was the only time, and I called called to let them know that I was wounded and everything was okay. So that was the only time. So it, it would be fair to say that you and your wife actually went through the transition together. Of course. And that, and that she, was healing. She was used to the commissary. She was used to the PX. She was used to the doctors, the military doctors, the military hospital, that whole type of situation. She was with the OCS and understood everything there. She understood everything in the regular regular military by the way, that was very interesting being an officer. Every time we went to a new new fort, our my wife had to get calling cards, and the calling card would read the rank of of, of her husband. In her case, this she would her card said Mrs. Lieutenant Linda Polahusky. <laughs> and the first thing that we had to do when we got to a new post, that she'd have to go to the commanding officer's home, and put her calling card on a gold dish that was in the uh, foyer of the commanding general's home. <laughs> steeped, the, steeped in tradition as it was, you know. Yeah, and that is tradition going way back to the American cavalry, I think. Is it? So, yeah, is it? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, from what I know. Yeah. Well, that, very interesting. Now, so, I, again, we're going to move on to uh, your coming home. And over all of these years now, you know, we're we're uh, been home 50 years, most of us. Yes. Uh, any thoughts coming back on the war and how the men that served under you are doing or would yes. be doing, as as there must be something. We, we, I speak to several people, and we also sometimes go to the reunions. My wife doesn't like going to the reunions because every guy sits around, talks about Nam, and drinks heavily. Yeah, right. So uh, um, your question? The question is, oh. you know, now you're home. You, oh, yes. you, you, these men were under your command in Vietnam. Yes. Now you come home. You've transitioned. They're no longer under your command. But are there any reflections back that are either well, troubling, happy? Do men come to you and, and ask for good question. how they're doing yes, today? Yes. yes. Uh, or do those relationships just get cut off dead? One of the point? things that I've decided to do is come out of the closet. So by that I mean uh, I've been telling people about Vietnam. It's interesting that I, I make presentations <laughs> Excuse me, in high schools as well as to uh, uh social groups, uh, rotary clubs, ladies' clubs, things of that nature. And, and it's interesting to see how few people understand the military or what happened in Vietnam, uh, especially high school kids. They, they are, for the most part, uh, unaware of some of the things that we all faced at that point in time. They don't face, face the draft. Uh, they have no understanding of, of that, that type of responsibility. You know, you're next to go someplace. As it was in World War One, as it was in World War Two, and as it was in Korea, so it, it's really enlightening to see their reaction. Speaking in certain similar terms, I, I I always get Purple Heart stamps, and I go to the well, the other month I went to the post office, and there was this young postal carrier there taking orders, and I asked her for a book of Purple Hearts, and she looked at me and bewildered, and, and went into her drawer and gave me these hearts that were for Valentine's Day. <laughs> and I said, no, purple heart stamps. <laughs> she kind of looked at me like, what are you talking about? So it just so happens I have a hat with a purple heart on it, and I showed it to her, and she's, oh, okay. <laughs> but this woman was in her mid-20s, obviously, and had no concept of what a purple heart is, let alone Vietnam. <laughs> right. Well, how, how about the guys that actually served under you? Yes. Do they contact you with any issues that they're yes. having, or, or uh, just I, some uh, emotional backup? I, I have two two of my uh, people that that contacted me, and we're on a, on a regular Christmas card basis, 
in fact, I've had them over to the house. So um, that that's about the closest contact in terms of other people right. on a real personal basis. And again, like the reunion I mentioned. Right. So, so you've been able to move on. Uh, yes. You ha- were successful in business. You do a little bit of speaking through veterans groups today. Yes. Uh, in retrospect, um, when you came home, issues with nightmares or reflections? As I mentioned, this anxiety and this, this contempt. Yeah. It, did that continue that, or, or did you? No, no. It, it ended uh, five, ten years later. Right. So, so you've had that. Uh, if you were to have a minute to say anything to officers who are out in the audience... Uh, who might be struggling with issues, what, yes. what would you say? You know, Reach out to veterans groups and, and be proud of what you did. It's a different time. Um, and people would be more aware if we were more open about what happened and what we did. All right. uh, one other question I'd like to ask before we close here, Alan. The war in Afghanistan just ended um, a week ago, I think, or, or, yes. or recently, five weeks ago. Um, they are going to be up, I think, against something that we were up against, and that's why did we lose all these lives for a war yes. that just ended for no reason, and who did it, who made all the money? A lot yes. of anger at that, which you've already expressed, coming home, why me, why did I have to go? But that's really, really in addition to the whole question of what was that all about, why the lives, Nobody, and now you're just walking away and letting it go like it didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, any advice to these young Afghanistan veterans who are going to, probably up against that now? In fact, I know they're up against well, that now. Well, uh, I'm sure they're aware of what the heck's going on and the fact that, again, the politicians got us in and they got us out terribly. Yeah. So what about the guys we left behind, your, your Afghan translators, your Afghan drivers, your, you know, the natives that helped us? We had, uh, I forgot to mention this, we had Kit Carson scouts. Right. Remember that? Sure. A Kit Carson scout was a uh, North Vietnamese or Viet Cong guy that, that converted and, and actually right. yeah, surrendered and actually helped us. They would translate and they would know the, the terrain. Uh, oftentimes I wonder what happened to our Kit Carson <laughs> scout. Okay. But maybe they ended up the same bad way that 1975 when we deserted you know, Saigon. And now they're deserting Afghanistan. Right, and it's a tough issue because you've lost buddies there. Yes. Uh, Gold Star families have lost their yep. members to this war, and now you just come up and said, well, after that. <clears throat> too bad. Yeah, too bad. See you later. Uh, <laughs> you know, let's go on to something yes. else. And that's going to be very punishing. It's going to create a lot of, I would say, rage for a lot of people yes. because I experienced that myself. But I have to remember that at the time, we didn't know it was going to end that way. We were still under orders. We were still under... The, the values of the, the military. So it, it, it's not like we can go back to that time with what we know now. We can only go back to that time as what we were doing at the time. And we thought that the, per pipe, the paper tiger we established, in, in the, our case, the Republic, the Arvins, Army of the Republic of Vietnam, and now the Afghan army, which is supposedly 300,000 strong, how soon before they fall, as did the uh, Arvins in Vietnam? which fell immediately. Yes, yes. Wow, and I hope that we as Vietnam veterans can have some help for them verbally, uh, publicly, to support them in having, I think, the same experience that we went through at the ending of the Vietnam War. War is war. War is war. Wounds are wounds, yeah. And value is value. What's the value? What was the value of that man's life or that man's leg or or the the psychological and mental health. That That's why I think you're doing a good job, Mike, and I hope that uh, veterans of all wars reach out to you and your foundation. Well, I appreciate that. Yes. So, 
Well, Alan, thank you very much for being on our show today. Yes. Um, I appreciate it. Thank you for your service to the country. I don't know if that means anything yes. to you. <laughs> That's all, folks. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for being our guest. Uh, and we are uh, very happy that you joined us today. And please feel free to bring us uh, uh, your comments to our foundation page, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.com. Your comments are very, very important to us in improving the show. And for... Uh, uh, today, our engineer is uh, Carrie Wheaton, and the Stigma Free Vet Zone is a podcast that's brought to you and to us through a grant from the Charles E. Coogley Foundation. And for many who have experience with any aspects of suicide, we know that depression can be something that can last for a long time and lead up to uh, the thoughts of, of depression, uh, of suicide. So consider uh, taking a look at the Charles E. Coogley Foundation website at charlesecooglyfoundation.org and see what they have to do, because they're doing great work on depression in the state of Wisconsin. And uh, for co-host Aaron Schroffnagel and Bob Bach, I am Mike Orban. And remember, this is educational, not stigmatizing. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.